Welcome to the Red Lining Podcast. We've got a treat for you today, but before we do, it's nice to um, have you all along, and we would like to remind you that if you like, subscribe, tell your friends about us, and this is always one I forget, like, subscribe, comment, 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 like, subscribe, and comment. Tell us who are ourselves. I don't care. Just write something because it's good for the algorithm. Uh, to my right, of course, we have the wonderful Richard Parker. Nice to see you again. You too. I'm not even going to make something funny. Let's just cut straight to Let's it. Let's just, just get into it. I'm excited because we have uh, New Zealand's godfather of techno and house music. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Greg Churchill. Welcome, my friend. Thank you very much. Um, can we just make it house music? I don't think I'm anywhere near godfather status for techno. It's uh, There's a few other wo- more worthy people than me. I've had a fleeting interest in the in the genre over the years, but I'm, my feet firmly remain yep. in the house camp. And he's incredibly humble. Well, <laughs> if you're the godfather of anything, just take it. It's great. How, how does it How does it feel being called the godfather of house in New Zealand? It was really weird. Um, I was suddenly people started calling me this, and I think it was Simon Gregg um, a long time ago who coined the phrase jokingly, and it kind of stuck. And I've only ever had one person turn around and accuse me or sort of said words along the lines of how dare you call yourself that? And I'm like, well, I never have. I feel slightly sort of humbled and embarrassed because there definitely there are other people just as worthy you know, of, of, of the title. So um, I'll run with it. Yeah, but I mean, let's talk about your longevity in the industry, though. Um, you started in, what, 1984, was it, something like that? That was on student radio. Uh, there was no such thing as house musical techno back then. And I kind of did sort of uh, begin as a radio DJ, essentially playing just a, a real just mixture of music. Uh, there wasn't really the, the, the quantity of music that we're so used to today. Yeah. There wasn't back then. Um, and I, I, I sort of had a fleeting interest in what was termed just categorically black music back then, which would cover like funk, disco you know, African music, yeah. um, uh, anything sort of dancey at all. Uh, yeah. Would that sort of be Northern Soul from the UK? Nor- yeah, yeah, like, uh, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, what radio it, station was it? Like there was uh, it was ninety eight RDU, which is the student station yeah. in Christchurch. You know, BFM obviously being um, part of the, uh, the, the the same sort of family yeah. that we yeah. have up here. Oh, that's awesome! So, um, what made you get into it? Just the love of music. Yeah, um, I always had a love of music. I was surrounded by um, an auntie who was always playing music at parties that we'd have at our house. And my mum, she, you know, in her record collection had Motown records and uh, she was a big fan of Dionne Warwick. And so, you know, as, as well as, you know, Elvis Presley or, you know, just mm. countless whatever else was, you know, being played a lot on the radio. I was surrounded by music, but I do remember. There was a time when I was about 13 or 14, I remember hearing Jean-Michel Jarre, mm. uh, early Parliament, um, the Commodores, uh, yeah. you know, just yeah. that sort of music. That wasn't to say that that's what I ran with and yeah. that's what I was into, but I do remember hearing those records and really loving them when most of my friends, they weren't interested. Um, mm. they, they were just, you know basically just ran with what was that here on the radio, really. Um, and I 
had part-time jobs after school and then as soon as I left school I ended up working in the post office and all my money just went on buying music and um, I sort of had a a two-year period after I left school before I went to to university for another five or six years and I just became absolutely consumed at the expense of um, what I should have been studying um, just just buying music, listening to music, discovering music, the history of music, and it, yeah, again, it was just everything, and it wasn't top forty. It was mm. music on the fringes, um, a lot of uh, college American rock music that was happening. You know, whether it was like Husker Du, The Replacements, you know, that that sort of thing that was happening, and uh, you know, we're st- we're still like pre house music at mm. this point, and then I just um, I rocked up to the student radio station. I think in 83, they sort of said no. I tried again in 84. Let me get the dates right. And uh, Michael Higgins, um, you know, thank you very much, Michael, for giving me, um, you know, the opportunity and the chance. Gave me a show and really it just sort of everything just snowballed from that. Um, I stopped studying. I quit my master's, you know, my fifth year of study. What was the master's you were studying? Uh, I was studying, it was political science. All right, okay. Um, But again... I just wanted to be on the radio. I'd fill in if there were people couldn't do their shows. I would be the first to put my hand up, you know, to, to do those. Um, I didn't. I, th- I think just being at university, taking the government money, was just an excuse not to be working, mm-hmm. and just to be, you know, on the radio, spending that money on the latest imports that I could, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be, I'd be running around all the record stores in Christchurch at that point, trying to be the first one into the into the boxes as they arrived. When did the transition from Christchurch to Auckland happen? That was a lot later. That was uh, I came up here in uh, February 1996. Oh, yep. oh okay. Yeah, so there was a huge time period and I didn't really I didn't you know get into the like um, DJ thing as such till 1989 mm. purely out of desperation because I'd accumulated I was buying so much of house music obviously that had been going on for about you know two to three years mm. prior to that and there was a wealth of just amazing hip-hop as well happening uh no one else had no one else was really playing the music um yeah. the way that i wanted to hear it anyway which was you know akin to what you'd be reading and hearing or stories from people coming back from 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 you know uh, from from europe and was it was it a natural progression from buying or liking motown uh to house music uh, what kind of happened uh, around the mid '80s was I got absolutely sick to death of a lot of the music I'd been listening to. The rare groove scene was kind of this very retro thing that was really massive in the UK. I was sick to death of um, the American rock thing that was happening, and then suddenly house music just mm. appeared and just fell on my lap, and I really just threw and sold all that other stuff, just to be able to buy as much of of the house music and the hip-hop. You know, like you had the early Eric B's and, mm-hmm. you know, the early Public Enemy. That was all happening at the same time. Oh, yeah. And it, it was all just a great fit. And it was music that, like, really resonated with me for some reason. It almost felt like everything else I'd listened to at that point, um, you know, th- this is where it, it finally was going to start to... Um, Mm-hmm. Right, so it sort of makes sense. Like I, prior to that, I'd played you know, orientation parties. Me and a few others, we, we'd DJ them, and it was just all crazy, you know, just 
fun and games, not knowing how to mix, just putting things randomly together. There was definitely no set construction. It was a case of like, um, what could we get away with at the same time, just, you know, giving everyone in front of us, you know, the, the best time that they could without them, like, you know, being scared off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, that was one of the early days of actually um, trying to uh, teach a crowd a certain style of music, right? Because you're introducing this kind of reasonably fresh, I'm, I'm assuming it's kind of Chicago house music that you were kind of buying? Oh, th- yeah, that, that, yeah. That, that's all there was, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, people really didn't want to know about it. Mm. Um, I was one of the few people in Christchurch, and I'd also met this other guy who had come, who, he used to own record stores um, in Camden, and he oh, had yeah. shifted out to, um, to, to Christchurch a few years um, you know, it was around about 85, I think, and I met him a couple of years later. And we started actually just, like, importing house music in. No, no one was really interested in, in putting it on the shelves, re- mm. other than maybe Nick at, oh, I can't even remember the record store now, uh, a Galaxy Records. He was probably the only one interested in, you know, small amounts of this music being available. So we had to do it ourselves. So how did you source the music? Uh, I was getting NME, like, air freighted, I had been for a very long time, just to, you know, just because I wanted to know what was happening. So did you did you know these tunes before you were buying them? No, I never heard them. But 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 it'd be a punt just based on mm. reviews on, like, on on charts. Because um, obviously it's before the days of like going online and just listening oh, to a tune, yeah, <laughs> and downloading it. Right? Just had no idea, but yeah. we were seldom disappointed. Yeah. Um, the, and thank God I found someone who someone else who was interested in this music. Otherwise, it could have been quite a, a lonely experience. And, and Dave was, he was, what, 10 years older than me, and he, you know, he played in sort of sort of funk bands and jazz bands as well. And he kind of taught me how to listen to the music in, in, in a different way than I had. I'd go around to his house in, in Littleton, and he'd turn the bass right up, and he'd, yeah. like, turn the treble, and he'd be dipping the mid-range, things yeah. that, you know, like, we all kind of laugh about, and, you know, um, it's kind yeah. of, taken for granted you do that now but but you know um you know 25 years ago um it was an education for me how hard was it to try and make it lucrative like it's a music that sounds very niche at the time how was it um what was I, it like making it lucrative and how did you do it the, the, uh, the money was an afterthought all the money did right. was buy for the, for the next you know um parcel of 12 yep. inches to you know to land on your door, doorstep really yeah. it was just the, the the fun of it and you know it, it felt great that this music was slowly resonating with 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 a, with a crowd really and um and, and yeah there were definitely plenty of times when it felt like it was a hopeless battle and there was actually yeah. one period i remember in, in about 1990 where i sort of quit for a while thinking you know you know maybe i need to like really re- reevaluate my uh, my, my work did it, my did options it, did it coincide with the rise of house music abroad i mean i know the u.s sort of house music started coming in in the mid 80s early early 80s mid 80s and then in the uk sort of around the same time so you must have been looking abroad and seeing house music you know coming to the fore and going look you know we need to bring it here i'm, I'm trying to yeah know. um it, it was a struggle and in 1989 when we first st- we, we actually got this club night on a Tuesday um, in, in like this quite massive venue in, in Christchurch. It would hold about like 600 people. We, we sort of managed to actually fill it up a few times, mm. you know, to those numbers. And we got a steady number through every t- Tuesday. was kind of like the Wednesday it is here in Auckland where the students go out. 
And so they'd all go to the movies or something or then they'd mm. pile in for, for, for their big night out. And, um, and about halfway through 1989, uh, I buggered off to London and, and spent like five months just immersing myself. I didn't work at all. Um, I blew a lot of money. But I just went to, <laughs> you know, to a lot of clubs, you know, and just went around the record stores daily and just I had so much music it took I had to like ship my, the majority of it back and it took took ages and then I came back to to, to Christchurch with with this attitude like of what I experienced and what I wanted to do here uh-huh. and no one wanted to know about you know, um, it, it kind of fell flat. And I, I see this happen all the time. People come back to New Zealand with their experiences and they want to transplant it. And you really are up against it because, you know, people will listen to your stories. They'll maybe listen to a few of the records, but nothing really changes that quickly. Just out of curiosity, what was the kind of music that was being played in the clubs around that time in New Zealand? It was pretty... It was very top forty. Top we, 40, we yeah, yeah, we were. Uh, what what we did was, uh, I know, uh, like what Simon and Roger Perry and people like Andy Van might have been doing here in Auckland, but in Christchurch, it was entirely a, a mixture of like Euro dance, um, Italian disco, maybe um, the odd sort of stock Aikman, Waterman, whatever those oh, you know like, tra- tracks along yeah. those lines. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't want to be um, disingenuous to the DJs back then. There were good mm. DJs. They could mix. I was pretty shit to start with. Mm. But on the whole, um, it was pretty awful. And a reason probably why, like even in the late, the mid to late 80s, I barely went out to a club at all. And then that reason why, my God, I want to hear this music mm. out. We'll just do it ourselves. Um so you, when you went to London, was it like 1989, did you say? Yeah. Did you go to Shoom? Was Shoom open at that point? Uh, uh, Danny Rampling's club? I don't remember. Don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right answer. I was there for five months, bought a lot of albums, don't remember yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remembered I arrived on a Saturday. I, went, I was um, living in Holland, where I lived was in Holland Park. I was very fortunate to live in a very nice area. Uh, I went straight down to Porto, went down Portobello Road and just went into shop after shop and came back with like an armful of like a mixture of like reggae 12s and house mm. 12s. Uh, Vinyl Solution was a record store that, it, that, that they, they spurned um, the guys that became Chicken Lips and, oh God, Bizarre Inc. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and so I managed to like meet those guys and they were really good at like pointing me in the right direction mm. of where to go. So I arrived on the Saturday, got over the jet lag by Monday, went down to the Brixton Academy um, on the Tuesday night, walked in there, there's like a thousand people in there, and the first track I hear is French Kiss. (laughs) (laughs) First time you heard it? First time I'd heard it, oh, yeah, yeah. Man. wow, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, that that's yeah. Everyone remembers the first time they heard that track. Man. Oh the yeah, oh, and it was a gay night. <laughs> <laughs> man, there's a track that's still been remixed. Yeah, and uh, oh. I mean, yeah, when when you hear that on the dance, just floor, just that riff, it is. It's yeah, just. Yeah. Hypnotic. I just love the orgasm in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not my personal one, yeah. obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that's an amazing track. Um, okay, so you came, so you came back to New Zealand trying to um, promote house music. Um, so, uh, did when Acid House started coming in, is that something you started to get into as well? 
so the Acid House had sort of happened, I reckon, before I went to the UK. Um, it had a reasonable sort of um, reaction. At the end of the day, stuff that had um, a decent hook or a good vocal mm. or that always seemed to work out. And, you know, I've got tracks by people like Amando and that who I sort of played them once or twice and then I, I just knew it just wasn't going to work. It, um, at that point in time, God, now you can just put an acid house. You could play a whole night of acid house, and people would just be yeah. totally down for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When did you think it became uh, most accepted in New Zealand, like house music? Late eighties, no, late um, late late nineties. Late uh, sort yeah. of like uh, when the nice uh, and Ehrlich thing crossed over. Yeah. Um, and the, and uh, those the, the compilations started to appear. Yeah. And I remember at BPM Records, we we just truck through those and you could tell there was a real turning point where uh people had were were, were starting to actually get get house music or understand it more than just like these a core 300 people that might have been at the box one night or down at caliber or somewhere that like suddenly you were getting like a thousand people at these parties and um and obviously the saint james center had a huge part of that when parties like Deep Heart and Funky started to appear yep. and you'd have like three or four rooms just all going simultaneously. You know, however you want to sort of um, genre size or whatever it is, 4-4 um, music, it was all 4-4, four, four, mm. you know, pretty much wherever you went. Yeah, and, yeah. Then, you know, it'd be like two, 3,000 easily people there. Sure. And, then you, and then that just built, you know, when they took it to LSE Racecourse, like with, with Tim Finn and Air House. And I remember one gig that was like, was like over 7,000 people there that night and you could barely move up up the escalator, mm. you know, to whatever the, um, on the four floors where all the music was, you know, Where was from. marketing coming from? Like, I'm from Pukekohe and, you know, 40 minute drive, and but all my mates, all country hicks, a lot of my mates yeah. knew about it, loved it, would drive up here drinking Red Bull, smashing it and just go, and go into these gigs. I wasn't so much into it back then. What, how, because there was no George FM back then. How yeah, was that there, music accessible? I, I think George FM had a huge part, like, so it's been going at least twenty years now. So, but late nineties, not so late, much. Late, no, oh god, I can't remember. Um, yeah. Like, there, I don't know. Obviously, BFM probably had a part to play that they certainly did with right. the early yeah. Nice and Ehrlich because they yeah. were doing that. The, the, uh, Peter and Bevan were on the on that morning breakfast show, right. which was hugely successful. Mm. Mikey Havocs, um, you know, he he, people like him and Jason Rockpig were playing yeah. a lot of house music as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, no. I often think, how do we communicate no. with each other before we have like <laughs> sex? I, mean. I thought about that at. the other week. Yeah, were we all ringing each other yeah. up endlessly? Think, and, but also, you think about music. It's it's you got your Spotify's and all those other ones. There's so much accessibility to everything now at the, at, for nothing, and you can just touch it. And everyone has this. It's an endless, well, seemingly endless supply of new genres that people have never. Um, tried before and if you're brave enough to get out of the algorithm you can dip your toe on all sorts of different mm. things and um, yeah we can do that now but back then you just had to mixtapes 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 yeah. I used to go to True. a local record store in Brighton and they had yeah. loads of illegal rave mixtapes and yeah. just I just used to buy a load of shitload of them and listen to them yeah. there was definitely a lot of that going on here mm. um, I don't know there were the little fanzines and the little magazines free yeah. free giveaways with what was happening yeah. um, I it's fair to say I don't think the punters really knew a great deal of the music. Obviously, mm-hmm. the, the the bigger tunes that were starting to appear on, like on the Ministry of Sound compilations or whatever, sort of yeah. coming through. But on the whole, it's not like we when we go out now and we, 
it's so easy to know a lot of the music. Well, it, it is yeah. and it isn't because a lot of the time I go out now and I'm like, I don't even know a single track I've heard all night. But there was there's definitely <laughs> been a, there's definitely been a tipping point where yeah. um, where punters know as much or can know even more than than a DJ with with the music that's available and yeah. and, and out there. Whereas you, you go back to the late nineties. I think they were just happy to go, this is what the DJ's got. I remember yeah. the excitement when the drum and bass guys would come out here with all their dub plates yeah. and every DJ would just be hovering mm. almost as that DJ, you know, whether it was Groove Rider or Goldie or mm, A-Sides, yeah. or they'd all be hovering yeah. over trying to get a glimpse of what that track was because yeah. that was basically a pointer to, you know, what, what the next six months was going to offer yeah. Back here for the, for the drum and bass scene. That's a throwback to the northern. Uh, the, I go back to the northern soul scene yeah. in the seventies in in Britain, where DJs were flying over to America and and just picking up these really rare soul records just to be the only one yeah. that played it mm. at that club. I mean, just to even think about that now, have a DJ play a song that no one else. The only way a DJ will play a song that no one else has is something they've put together themselves, right? Yeah, well, I remember soaking off the label. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was fortunate because you know sticking a white one on it, like the number of promos I'd end up getting at like yeah. at BPM, um, and I would write everything on the side that mm. I wouldn't play. Yeah, so people would just be faced with a you know white label after white label, um, and now I freaking hate it. Like when we were doing a black wax, I wish I wish I actually just had the original with the artwork yeah. with the labeling and all these. Fucking white labels now just annoy the <laughs> shit out of me. So um, why, but, did you, why did you do the white label thing? Um, so, so you get the white labels in advance. So they get sent to the record store. So we'd have an, yeah. at least an idea of of what we w- could be ordering. Right. Um, and they were just an absolute wank to have. <laughs> <laughs> they, man, they were they were just like gold. You turn yeah. up with like thirty white labels at a gig. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, you know, as I said, I used to write on the other side, so I yeah. knew exactly what I was. Playing, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and in many ways, it just lends what we said about the northern soul scene and, yeah. and the whole dub plate thing with with, with drum and bass DJs as well. Um, so when you do your black wax nights, um, do you just you just dip into your vinyl collection from yesteryear and and just yeah. So when you when you so when you do a black wax gig, do you prepare like a certain amount? Of, do you do you sort of go through your collection? And go right. Well, obviously you're not going to plan your set, but you, you go right. Well, here's a hundred records I, I might. Play. And d- does that change every time you, you kind of do a? Because you must have so many fucking records. Um, I've, I've had plenty of times when I've gone. This week I'm going to sort everything out. I'm going to find you know 30 new tunes to take along to Black Wax, and then yeah. it gets to the set down. I'm like, oh shit, I haven't fucking. Got <laughs> um, but recently I've been a lot more prepared, and I've just been like digging through stuff, just yeah. you know, like months out, um, and just finding absolute gold and yeah. gems. Like the other night, Leah and I. Leah, my wife, we, 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 it was a Friday. We just sat down. We just randomly started pulling records out and playing them. And, man, we found some gold. At the same time, we found some utter rubbish, <laughs> which, you know, as she said, yeah. we just need to start a pile over there and we'll, yeah. we'll just get rid of them. Um, but, yeah, um, I was buying quite a little bit of new stuff and then stuff wasn't arriving. It would turn up yeah. buckled. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I've got like still got 7,000 records. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just proof that if we just keep looking for it, and also sometimes you, you, your mood just changes. Yeah. Cool. So uh, I do pull out a lot of stuff prior, but I, I never 
decide what to take until mm. the, the afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah just yeah. based on how I'm feeling. You, but you, might, you also, it must be cool to sort of um, dig out these sort of rare gems and actually play them to a crowd that probably never heard them before and go, you know, actually... This yeah. is a this is a good train. Yeah, they may not know what it is. Uh, I, I, it may be fifteen, twenty years old. You know. Yeah, I, I tell you that the one track that has struck me that I had totally forgotten about, um, and I pulled it out two black waxes ago was um, Nick Fanciulli's "Lucky Heather" the Dubfire mix. Oh yeah. Oh my god! It's like how could I forget about a track like that? But I had. You know, the track's twenty years old. Totally forgotten about it. It's so much that I've just I play it regularly, just like on off USB on my normal yep. sets. It's yeah. that the vinyl sounds trem- unbelievably better. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the, the kick drum, it's got so much bass in it, whereas the, the, like the digital file doesn't have no. quite have it. But for a track that's thirteen minutes long, <laughs> man, it accelerates, and it's got the French kiss. Riff yep. that just like yep. builds after about like five minutes and just yep. tears the place to bits. It's a throwback from that uh, sort of uh, early two thousands progressive house where yeah, like yep. tracks were long and they build and they build oh, and they build. Mm, yeah, but but it doesn't feel like thirteen minutes. Mm. It man, that yeah. it, God, you definitely go for a piss. You know, have, have a cigarette <laughs> if you need one. You know, nip down for a bloody yeah. half a slice of pizza and you know be back in time to like make sure the next track's going to like going smoothly. It's. Uh, <laughs> I'm we, definitely going to be listening back to this and going. I okay, making notes, listening yeah. to all the stuff on Spotify. Yeah, where are we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but, but it's, it's it's just proof that if you know, just yeah. spending the time, just going through the vinyl, it's amazing what you find. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. You, how how much vinyl do you have? You said seven thousand. You got yeah. Vinyl? I got rid of about when when I moved in with Leah um, seven years eight years ago. Um, I said to her, oh, I've got quite a bit of vinyl to bring around. <laughs> and the boxes just keep coming and coming and coming and she I remember she took some photos going is that it and I'm like oh no 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 we've got another another boot full and uh, I, it was about 10,000 that day um, and we had no room in her old house so um, I said about selling a whole lot of it um, yeah. it was quite a few bits I regretted selling so I just bought them again but on the yeah. whole I haven't missed much um and we sort of got it to a point. I could probably get rid of a mm. few crates at the moment to make room for, you know, just so everything's not so sort of slammed in. And Did it become more back. like collector's pieces for yourself, though? Like, I used to collect, I still do, I collect DVDs and Blu-rays and all that yeah. sort of thing. And, and the thought, even though I've, some of them I've never watched, but the thought of throwing them away or giving them away or anything like that, just bring, I just can't do it. Is it, is it same sort of thing? Or are you easy come, easy go? So um, I fluctuate. Yeah. Um, I've had massive regrets for what I think I've sold more music over the years than I've than I actually um, have um, kept. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff I wish I hadn't, but also like economic necessity. Like when I was younger, going sell some stuff to buy some more, right. and you know, you know, yeah, you know. Um, yeah, you just I mean, the thing is, you can just buy it again now. It's uh, yeah. mind you, some of the prices on stuff. I did this really silly thing a while back. Um, I was at a mate's party and um, I was about to head home and I was freezing. And uh, he said, um, Oh, he actually had an Adidas top, and I was like, Oh, yeah, I kept bugging him about it. So we decided um, I would swap um, a 12 that he had his eyes on that I had. Uh, for this Adidas top 
and um, you know, it's all cool at the time. I, I was sick of the said track, um, only to find about six months later it was worth two hundred and fifty dollars. Oh god, <laughs> shit! What was the track? Uh, it was oh no, it was Patrick Topping's Forget. Oh, was, okay. There was only like forty or fifty of them ever pressed. Right, yeah. But I, I was oh man, that track was I th- I love that track when it came out, and um, there needs to be more unique tracks in the sense mm. like that. I was thinking about yeah. that earlier today. It kind of reminded me of early Justin Robinson and Lion Rock. But anyway, at the time I was over, I couldn't give a <laughs> shit about it, and I just remember so- someone also messaged me online said, "Oh, apparently you've got you know Forget," and I'm like. No, nah, I haven't anymore. How much do you want for it? No, I haven't got it anymore. I got rid of it. I swapped it for a for a bloody Adidas top, which I don't even have anymore. I don't even know who's got that. Um, Shit. But, but that's the thing. That the price, there's better investments if you can make the right purchases with vinyl these days. Yeah. And there probably is like on the stock market. It's um, yeah. If you can pick a track up on its initial release for like 20 bucks, and mm. man, you know, they just keep, the prices just keep going up. Yeah. What's what's one of the jewels of your collection, would you say? Oh, Badonk Donk. <laughs> what's that? Oh, it's oh, mine. Oh, sorry. I've, 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 got, I've got the only copy in the world with the vocal. <laughs> Is it on Spotify? We'll look at it right now. No. <laughs> so we've talked about your musical inspirations. As a performer and a DJ, who are some of your inspirations? Oh, um Who who mixes your soul? Mixes myself like go, going right back. Uh, the biggest influence on me ever has been Paul Weller in the gym. All right, hands down. Okay, um, yeah, I can still get pretty emotional watching you know a YouTube video of oh, the gym. Yeah, yeah, one of my greatest regrets is I never saw them. Um, but yeah, just I don't know. There was just something about that music, about his lyrical content, and the fact that w- when he's began to dabble with um, like Motown influences mm. stuff like you know Town Called Malice and mm. um, you know Beat Surrender and all those tracks just that real dancey thing mm. just kind of and then into the style counts which just just got me at the right time really and you know and he started using drum machines which you know by my early 20s I just loved the sound of drum machines yeah. um, I would you know don't give me a piccolo snare I don't want to hear one of those again in my fucking life um <laughs> Yeah, the sound of drum machines, I just absolutely loved. From yeah. I remember there was like this really average covers band in Christchurch I used to go to just because they had a Simmons drum machine. That was enough <laughs> to get me in the door, pay the cover charge, and just yeah. just sit there and go, oh, I love the sound of those drums. Oh, my God. Yeah, don't, yeah. Have you found the um, technological transitions over the last 30-odd, 40 years? Yeah, they're fine. I don't want to go back playing to vinyl full-time. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you still dabble with it, or as a, as a hobby, or oh, because so, so we do the black black wax thing like once yeah. every like two three months, but but that, yeah. that that's enough of a fix. There's yeah. too much stress involved. Oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah. just yeah. the fact that randomly a tracks can just like out of the mix, yeah, you know, and through no fault of your own, yeah, um, or you know, just a lack of concentration or something. It's I think the thing is with the it's, it's not worth it. Vinyl decks, depending on where you go, they they could be fucked, and if they're fucked, and the and the and the where they are, and the whole sort of son, uh, situation of where they are isn't right, then it's just a pain, right? And just even with with tech, if you're talking about technology, mm. the fact that you can like cue a track on USB and you can change your mind right. a number of times. Just so quickly, yeah. you know, it's it's better for everyone. It's better for the dance floor if you actually have changed your mind and gone. Hang on, no, 
no, I'm going to play that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're giving them a better experience mm-hmm. as opposed to you've committed yourself to playing this track yeah. and suddenly you're like, you've run out of time to to maybe mix it or, you know, um, just all those factors. Yeah. And the night, it, uh, the imbalance mm. isn't really worth it, I don't think. Yeah. Would you give any substance to the argument that some people think that they uh, that vinyl obviously sounds better? I'm not, that's not the argument I'm, I'm It sounds different. It sounds different, mm. but when someone goes out to a club or a bar, they're not going to really give a shit about what you're playing as long as you're playing good music, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The, like the Nick Fanciulli track I was talking about, the vinyl definitely sounds better. Mm. But that's not to say that the vinyl would sound better through a different PA, a different um, head shell or whatever. There's just so many factors in that, in that chain yeah. before it reaches the audience's ear um, to, to why sound can sound so different from, from one medium to the other. What have you been doing over the past couple of years? Like COVID kicked in, changed everything for a lot of people uh, performance-wise. Did you delve into anything different over that period? Did you indulge yourself in some other hobbies or anything like that music-wise? Yeah, I watched a lot of Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> True. I think we all did. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd run my course with South Park. I, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, after like you know six or seven times of seeing all those episodes, so I needed yeah. something new, and that, yeah. that that's arrived. And you, you, you didn't get into this um, live streaming lark or anything like that. No, I'm proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's another live stream. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't sell out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm it's more of a family guy myself, but anyway, carry on. I think it's it's difficult because um, I mean let's talk let's talk about COVID because yep. I mean it's what we do unfortunately yeah, we love it. So the couple of years before COVID, you're pretty busy. The scene was pretty pumping here, and then COVID comes along, and then we have two years of stop start events uh, happening: red light, green light, blue light, fucking whatever light, um, and then we're back up and running again. But it's not the same. What is going on with the events scene in New Zealand at the moment? Are events fucked at the moment, and why? They're, they're definitely not what they were, uh, but I think New Zealand and Auckland isn't an isolated case of this. You, you read about this happening globally. You see the number of festivals that are folding, the number yeah. of six bars shut apparently have shut this year mm. in Wellington alone. Um, when we came out of that first lockdown, it was just like one of the most glorious periods I can remember. Mm. Town was just humming. There were queues to get into wherever you wanted to go. You couldn't even get an Uber. Um, (laughs) That was the summer of 2021, wasn't it? 20 to 21. 2020, June-ish. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. When we came out of the next lockdown... I, seriously, I can't even remember now. Cause, yeah. So we came out on New Year's Eve pretty much, didn't we? Yeah, yeah for about six yeah. weeks. And, and, yeah. and it kind of hummed along. It, it was all right. Um, and then the most recent, mm. it, people just aren't going out. People's, or no. people just, you know, they're a lot more cautious. Mm. Um, they've got out of the habit. People discovered yeah. just the joy of having a house party, of you know hanging out with their mates. Mm. Yeah. Um, the, the cost of living, obviously. There's yeah. just so many variables. Um, do you think? Yeah. Do you think the um, nightlife 
in New Zealand could do anything to bring the crowds back? Or is it really just the kind of um, financial situation people are finding themselves in? I think the, uh, one of the mistakes we might be making is we're comparing now with how things have been mm, yeah. and we're maybe going even too far back and making those comparisons. The game's changed, mm. and I think we have to acknowledge that and we have to find other ways to to continue. Festivals have given people a way to go out and party and not have, like... Um, overtax their bodies and like annihilate <laughs> themselves for, for Monday morning. Yeah. Um, you know, they're probably a lot more fun as well. The idea of being in a club yeah. doesn't obviously have the appeal now that, mm. that it did when, when we were growing up, when we were began to DJ or whatever. Um, I do, one thing I'm sort of, um, I, I sort of see now is like, I don't want to say this where I'm going to say it. There's a lot of mo- there's a lot of moaning about certain events and bars and clubs online now. Is it because I've only just started noticing it? But what I find is that everyone seems to have an opinion on why something's not working, and uh, obviously through social media. So is social media to blame for this? Would you say? Okay, can you be more specific? Uh, yeah, I can be more specific. So. Um, For example, Symphony over the weekend, uh, they shifted their day to the Sunday because of a rain day, and a lot of people like moaned about that uh, online. Uh, I can understand some people's grievances because they had plans, and we've talked about this on the show. A lot of the demographic that go to these shows are sort of 30 onwards who have got kids and families and babysitters booked and all that. And... um, Obviously, because of the recent events with the weather in New Zealand, they wanted to be precautious um, and move that date. Um, but there was quite a lot of criticism online. So we, we, do we need to like separate the criticism of the scheduling of, of the gig itself as opposed to what the final product was here, though? Because I, yeah. I, I fully understand people's grievances with, if, you know, if they're travelling from another city, they've got hotels, whatever yeah. paid for, flights, babysitters, um, and the fact that it's better to party on a Saturday than it yeah. is on a Sunday. Um, okay, but at the same time, it seems like the final product actually delivered yep. has been like out of this world. Uh-huh. And it, yeah. like I'd played on maybe six or seven symphonies and I'd honestly got to the point where, you know, I'd seen it, I'd seen enough. Yeah. But this was enough to, after reading reports, seeing what people were saying online, mm. to go, shit, I wish. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd go to another one mm. just because the experience yeah. sounded amazing. Yeah. yeah, I think something what you, what what you might be getting at there is um, there's too many. There's a minority of people that will vocally complain about something. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be an inconvenience for the date change, obviously, for mm. most people. And I just think there's just a minority of people who get on and just complain, 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 and it sort of degrades. The quality, not the quality of the product, but the actual quality of the experience without even experiencing it. You know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. I wasn't supporting yeah. the fact that I was just yeah. being devil's advocate. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, no I, I agree with what you... I, I think there is... A, it's People are creating and not realising they're doing mm. it by, by just getting on and bitching about something. I mean, Social that, media has yeah. got really bad, it seems, in the last six months. Mm. Like, okay, so, yeah. you know, like I've got presents on... Facebook, obviously, a little bit of Instagram, which I kind of 
couldn't care less about really <laughs> yeah. in, in many ways. But you know, occasionally I'll think, oh shit, I should post something on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and then here's my dinner. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll just show them the liquor cabinet. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And 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 then I'm on Twitter, which I use purely for you know yeah. to follow politics, yep. um, and you know and a, and a bit of music here and there. And I don't want any, I don't want people following me. Mm. Um, yeah. And I've got a number of people that I follow um, whose opinions um, you know I agree with, or whose opinions I want to to at least read and yeah. digest. But like a year or two ago, I have great fun reading you know, all the replies and what other people are saying. Yeah. Um, or just even threads on, you know, follow, suggested yeah. for you. Now, now I'm just avoiding it now yeah. because it is just a cesspit yeah, of, just, totally right. of just yeah. absolute fucking shit and bots yeah. and trolling yeah. um, that I don't want to know about. Um, no. I'll read the threads yeah. that, you know, people put and I. Th- this is the problem and I can, yeah. it's not as bad on Facebook, but you can just see that the way yeah, society is going. They, it's they, interesting what you say over the last six months because I've noticed it more as well. Yeah. And for me, Facebook's the worst because yeah. I just get bombarded with A, ads and comments from people I don't even follow I'm not mm. friends with, right? Yeah. And you just keep getting all these things. And the ads and the news articles, again, from sources I don't subscribe to. Mm. Just and, and it's just the most clicky shit. It's just like, you won't believe what such and such said. And you're like, I don't fuck off because you, know you, you, know, you know what they're doing. It's all, the economy of that is now based on Algorithms and clicks. So it sort of boosts it. And then you've got some people who are once friends and or whatever and just constantly complain about it because they get drawn in. And then it comes up and then I get drawn in. And lately I've been just, I've got to stop. I'm just off. I'm, I'm, I want to get rid of Facebook so badly yeah. because oh. it, there's no point. It adds nothing to my life. And I noticed, one, I wrote something up on there the other day because there's this one guy, I can't remember his name. You know, hardcore whatever his leanings are, and I'm just a little bit centred toward everything. And I just kept commenting on his stuff, mainly to rack him up. But then I stopped and I realised, and then someone commented on something I said, and it was like, I thought, I look like a dick. What <laughs> the fuck did I do that for? I got baited into it. Yeah. And it, But yeah, so... It takes a really smart person yeah. and t- just to avoid that now, just to like rise, yeah. rise above it. Um, yeah. It takes a, a really smart, strong person yeah. Um, I think it takes what it takes to, and, to, and to be positive. Yeah. It's yes, like, we more people yeah. just need to show just support. They don't need to show love. We don't need to necessarily go that far, but just some support. Yeah, is is man that can make a difference to to people's lives. Yeah, um, but it's so easy mm. to be that negative, hateful person. Yeah. Um, and it's easier to monetize hate, hate as well. I'm mm. I'm thinking I might be going on a limb here, but I think it just appears that that seems to be the angle. Trying to find something for us to get baited into, which makes us angry, and it's, it's, yeah, maybe it's encouraging people to be more, you know, so, vocal uh, about their anger, and then people just don't want to go out. Well, like, yeah, and I, I, that's that's my whole point is that I think it has a negative impact on people's opinions of of going out, and that's probably why they're maybe not going out as much. One of the reasons, not the main reason, obviously. I, but I also yeah. think we need to think about the, the the younger crowds and the younger generation coming through as well, where. Um, we're all getting old. Um, we probably are less likely historically to to go out. Yeah. If we, you know, we tend to pick our events. Um, we're probably a lot more careful with with um, with how we spend our money, maybe. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so the younger generation, the younger crowds coming through, mm. and I've started to notice that there was kind of a bit of a lull, like 
like with ink maybe. And now there's like three or four young crews that are like starting to put on notes that they're coming through. I'm sure other venues have, I hope yeah. they have similar mm. sort of scenarios occurring. And it's a case that, well, it's kind of their time. They're the ones who are going to like, you know, if they're, what I see is like people maybe the more in their mid-twenties yeah. who've done their thing down the viaduct or wherever um, and gone, you know, you know we, we want music that's a little bit better than, you know, yeah. what being force-fed in these more commercial venues. Um, they're starting to don't want to put on their nights. They've got mm. a bug for DJing. They're the ones that we need, we probably need to like relate more to or at least understand you know where they're coming from. Their musical differences aren't that great, but yeah. the thing is that they've got a, a hunger and a passion that we used to have. Yeah. yeah, we we can still have it, but at the likelihood of us going out every week is yeah. marginal now, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, um, that's where we need to be supportive of people coming through that love house music. They love techno, yeah. w- w- whatever. Um, it's more or less their time. Um, I'm not saying that's time for us to say goodbye, but I think we can't be the old people turning up going, yeah. oh, you know, there's not many people here tonight. <laughs> God damn. If, 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 if we're not giving yeah. them the opportunity yeah. to, yep. to do their thing. So, so, Greg, how do we entice these um, younger generation into the house and techno scene? Uh, we give them support. We give them, you know, we, we give yeah. them... We give them a big hug and go, come on. Um, we mentor them and not in, in a classical mentoring um, manner, but in, in a way that just encourages them enough to give them enough sort of, um, you know, confidence to, to, to want to do this. Um, play alongside them. Um, that, that often gives them a buzz. And I've, I've, I've loved playing with, with these younger crowds recently. Um, just the buzz, the, the enthusiasm – it's just a younger crowd as opposed to maybe a crowd that was there, you know, mm. 10 years ago, 15 years ago. We, we all just love house music or house and techno. Yeah. yeah. And that's always the godfather, the fucking voice of reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. so true. It's not about me anymore. It's not about us anymore. Let's yeah. talk. Let's Gen talk. Gen X is a fading. Let's talk what? DJing. I'm just curious to know, um, what would you, what advice would you give to any young DJs coming through? At the moment, because there's plenty of good, talented DJs coming through at the moment. You've just got to, if you've just got to be yourself. You've got to just don't play a track because you heard someone else play it and 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 it had a great reaction. Don't play it for that reason. Don't play it because it's top of beatport. Find the shit that you like because mm. people honestly pick up on that shit. If if you are loving it and you're into it, there is a connection that. Pick up on your passion. Yeah, people yeah. actually pick up on that shit. It's um, it's really hard to instill maybe that confidence in, in a lot of young DJs initially because uh, yeah. they're still finding their way. But that's what I always say is just follow your heart um, with the music that you want to play, you know, yeah. and to take a chance with it, yeah. I think a lot of people, are, and this has been the case for uh, ever, but yeah. people just try to please too many people. Don't try to please everyone. You know, it's, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the same with filmmaking. It's like, don't try to please everyone. Pick your, pick your genre, pick your audience and go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a fence you sort of do have to cross at some point where you mm. go, um, it, it's impossible 
mm. to please everyone, and yeah. you just have to be happy with the with, with with those that you are yeah. pleasing and those that will follow and those that will maybe catch on at some point. Yeah. Um, and if people walk away or walk out of a night, yeah, it's just going to happen. It, yeah, it's just part of the, putting yourself in front of people. I think people will either fall in love with your music or they love your music or the rest of them can fall in love with your passion for it. You know what I mean? I think there's something cool about like I don't. I've this has all been a learning experience for me. Like I've I've only just got got into sort of electronic music and all that sort of thing over the last fifteen years or so, and it's been really interesting for me. Just the, the thing that got me into it was watching other people's passion and fun for it. Yeah, you know what I mean. May have been fueled, but most of the time it was just <laughs> great music and they love it. And yeah, like, I'll go to any concert as long as it's with people who I know enjoy it. And mm. you just always have a good time because you're just watching them. And you could become a fan. Mm. And I think that's what you're right. You're absolutely right. Be the fan that you want them to be. Yeah. Wow, that's the deepest thing I've said for a while. Wow, that is well, fucking yeah. deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, so what have you got? What do you got coming up? What's what's on the, on the board for you over the next few months? Uh, well, okay, this is the biggie. Um, I during lockdown, I was curious to how many gigs I'd ever played at Ink Bar, and I worked it out. It was in the nine late nine hundreds. So the big Holy one, shit. big one I got coming up is I'm going to play my one thousandth gig at Ink Bar in May. Holy shit! Yeah, I know. Are you going to play all night? Yeah, I'm going to play the whole night. Yeah. Yes, and I haven't done that since I haven't done that for eight years where I played the whole night. Yeah, the last time I did a six hour set for. Uh, Matt Drake, he had a night called Mono where he'd get mm-hmm. someone in there to play the whole night. That was the last time I played from start to finish. Yeah. Wow. But I've done tons of four-hour sets yeah. mm. um, over the last few years. And like New Year, I did five hours. So it, it's the, the only problem I face is like you assholes who are going to try and get me drunk <laughs> <laughs> at, at, at an early stage. So it's, it's, all, it's all basically resting on my shoulders how well I can behave earlier on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... When you're when you're tasked with playing all night, are you going to mix the vinyl and digital up? I don't think I will take the vinyl. Um, when Ink Bar opened, and by the time I started playing there twenty years ago, the vinyl was definitely on the way out. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember playing a few gigs, and then it's sort of by two thousand four five, we, we were definitely into the digital medium by then. Mm-hmm. So I don't re- There's not. I don't, I only want to play music from you know, the 20 years that I've been playing there anyway. So there's not much vinyl to take. Okay. And again, vinyl just loads you down. Yeah, It's like, uh, oh, it'll just create this other little voice in my head yeah. about not fucking up, about, you know, keeping it tight. And <laughs> and you, you do drop a degree of enjoyment as soon as, yeah. you, as, soon as you start playing vinyl as well. Do, yeah. do, you, do you have, because you've been in the game so much and you are seen as the godfather, do you, you sort of have this thing where, where people go, he's not going to fuck up, this is Greg Church. <gasps> What did he do? <laughs> There's no pressure there, right? <laughs> I know so many ways to get out of a fuck. You, you hear the train wreck coming a mile away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's dope. Oh, I'm a different. Oh, There's different easy way. ways to get out of a train wreck with vinyl as well. Yeah, it yeah, shouldn't yeah. really spin have. Backs. Yeah, spin yeah. backs. Loop the fucker. Just put it on that one. So what's just out of curiosity, as we're sort of talking about this, what's the What's the biggest DJ foul that you've had in your career, would you say, on when you've been playing out live? A funny story, maybe. Say that again? What's the biggest DJ fail or funny story when you've been playing out over your career? 
Fail. Okay. Because um, we talked to Josh Butler and he said um, he he was playing and then um, like the music just stopped and he, he, oh, didn't yeah. really, he didn't really know what to do after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably the, 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 there was a bit of a sort of, a, it was definitely a crossroads for me. I was playing at the Worcester Bar about 1980 and I remember I made this colossal fuck up of a mix. I was playing Together's Hardcore Uproar. I can't remember the other track. And when I look back at Hardcore Uproar these days, that's a prick of a track to mix. Well, music back then, there was no emphasis on a kick even to like sort of guide you if um, you know you sort of were struggling a bit. It was all kind of toppy and mid-range with a feeble bloody 909 <laughs> kick that was tuned so fucking high that you know it shouldn't have even got past the, in- the, um, uh, the cutting engineer. Anyway, I just remember I trained Rick that so, so badly that I... Um, and it still sticks in my mind. I can picture it so vividly that I stopped drinking for five years. Oh, what? Yeah, I <laughs> okay. gave up drinking. I was like, am I taking this seriously or not? Yeah. And it was a real crossroads moment for me. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know what the other track I was playing, but I just felt like an utter dick. Were you, were you dr- not drunk, but were you drinking at the time? So yeah, yeah, you, you yeah, yeah. Awesome. Oh, yeah, no, because... Just you do drink all night, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know any different, um, but it, it made me realise that if, if I wanted to take this seriously, if I actually wanted to, you know, continue, not necessarily even succeed further, that um, I needed to, you know, just knock the drinking on the head. Yeah. Um, and when I do play vinyl, you know, I might have a couple of shots to. You know, calm the nerves, and mm-hmm. then nothing until I feel fully settled at mm-hmm. all. If you're playing <laughs> USBs, God, there's so many nights when you know you've just been, you know, you've drunk so much, you feel pretty, you can feel pretty shit faced. You can still hold it together. Yeah. God, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's not that difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. I was, at, um, I played, a, I had a residency in Brighton, and I was playing. Eric where, where did you? I played in Brighton once. Uh, it was a club called La Truffle Cow. It was down uh, West Street. Uh, uh, I, I, it was on a basement, in a basement. It was like 2008. I played in this club down by the shore. The Zap? Yeah. That was my very favourite club. That I used to live there in the late 90s. Friday nights used to I, be so good. I played there I, I played there on a Friday in 2002, Holy maybe. shit, I may, be, I may have been there. Yeah. That was, it's, <laughs> like, it's a really cavernous place, so you yeah, go in yeah, and yeah. there's like, yeah, it's got this main room and you can go up these steps and there's another sort of room that's really cavernous. It's, oh, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. In the late 90s, they had this sound system that just had this really muffled bass and it just added, it, it, like, the atmosphere in there was just unbelievable. It was so good. I got up the next morning, uh, and me and it was with, um, I think it was with Ben Davis from Paper Recordings, and we were walking down the pier, oh, yeah. and we're just looking <laughs> over the side, and this, and this kid goes, Dad, Dad, it's a floater! <laughs> and he's pointing down there, and this big turd's just floating in. <laughs> Sounds like Brighton. <laughs> yeah, Brighton. Sorry, I, I interrupted you there. No, I was just, I was just saying that um, I, I was playing uh, piano by Eric Prids, you know, mm. and uh, okay, it got, it was in the breakdown and it was building, it was building. And then just, uh, this is when I started using um, Serato Digital Vinyl. And just as it was about to drop back in, um, everything turned off. <laughs> and I was oh, like, really? holy shit, what do I do now? And everyone looking at me and I'm like, Fuck, so I have to restart my computer and everything like that, and like it killed killed the vibe. So I was <laughs> like, you know, yeah. So I, I I went back on. I just started another track, and they said, "Oh, can you play it again?" I was like, "It's kind of the moments." The moments got you, yeah, yeah. You know, 
yeah. but uh, technology. <laughs> but when, I, when I played that six-hour set, um, it was about eight years ago. Um, the, the fire alarm went off at Inc. Oh yeah, about yeah. two to three hours in. We so we had to clear the whole place out, and then everyone just hung up the top while the, the fire brigade came down and they checked everything out. Everyone back in, and everyone just came roaring back in, and the night just didn't miss a beat. It felt, oh, yeah. but there was that moment going, oh. Fuck, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, actually, I remember going to a night in uh, 2000. Oh, no, it was like late 90s again at a student union where um, I can't remember who was playing. It was like uh, some techno night. And the fire alarm went off, but everyone thought it was the music. So we were like just <laughs> carrying on dancing in the fire alarm. And, and the security going, you've got to get out. Why? This is, this is amazing. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Oh, 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 it's the fire alarm. <laughs> <laughs> so like they were trying to get everyone out. And yeah. then like we, we thought we'd be out for five minutes and then they shut the club. And that was it. I oh, know. Right. Oh, no. I remember the first time I played Human Resource Dominator. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was this big, big warehouse party in Christchurch. And I remember I must have just got it and gone, drop the, drop the needle. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Oh, yeah, play that. <laughs> Played it. And it's got those... Bells that go off, yeah. and I thought when the bells went off, because uh, it sounds like a fire alarm on the track. I thought, mm. oh shit, no way! <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then it, you know, it was like sixteen bars later, yeah. you know, yeah. the track continued. I'm like, is that a fire alarm? <laughs> Got home that next morning. <laughs> it's part of the track. Can <laughs> okay, oh, right. Godfather! It is. Uh, we just come up to the hour now. And uh, we'll wrap it up there. But thank you so much for coming in. It has been awesome and educational for me. That's flown that hour, I tell you. Yeah, that, didn't, didn't it? it? Yeah, it's been great to talk to you. I was like, I was like, oh my God, I'm getting filled up. There's so much lockdown, 20 minutes gone. Holy shit, we've got through yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Thank you very much for dropping by. Thanks for having and, me. Um, no worries. Uh, anything you want to tell the crowd uh, that you've got coming up? Anything you want to divulge? May the 13th, come along. May the 13th, yeah. we'll be there. We'll that, be there. that is going to be one packed ink bar. Awesome. Oh, actually, just one thing I did want to ask you, right? So you played at Ink Bar for like 20 years. Over those 20 years, has any improvements been made to the toilets? <laughs> Only to the woman's. <laughs> <laughs> we did a shoot there in the daytime. Like, seriously. I, I don't quite get the toilet thing, eh? Um, like CBGBs, Bath Street and Dunedin. I've <laughs> oh seen some shitholes of toilets over the years. <laughs> And occasionally I've got, like if I'm playing and I go to nip into the guys' ones and there's, it's full, I'll just whip into the women's ones and have a quick bloody slash. And um, I don't know, what, what, I, people, what, what's people expect, what, what is people's expectation of toilets? Like, um, seriously, <laughs> I go in there for like three minutes and you're out. I don't know. I think maybe like people's ideas of uh, club toilets now are like more luxurious. I don't know. Yeah, Fuck knows. I just thought it was quite funny on that. Hey, uh, I'm sure all these people go to festivals as well. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh but the thing is, if yeah. you're cunning about a festival, you just seek out the best toilet. Like at um, Splore this year, there were some toilets tucked behind the main stage, yeah. and if you like, no one went to. If you went there, like they were gold. You could take a yeah. shit there all day. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, even, they even smell good. Like, yeah, it did. It's quite nice. It's going to break from the fresh air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Once again, thank you very much for dropping by. Thank and you. Um, yes, we'll be following you over the next wee while. And hopefully we'll get you back maybe in a year or so and we'll talk more about how the retirement's going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> retirement, brother. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're good, Thanks, man. guys. Thanks, Frank. Cheers.